Welcome to Living Fullness, a podcast where two unusual friends explore all things friendships, relationships, and the Christian life. My name is Dina Constantine. And I'm Father Sean Burns. And each month, we bring you a guest, someone who will share their experience and strengths with us, helping us to learn, grow, and live life to the full. Hello and welcome back to Living Fullness, whether you're listening in through your earpiece, in your car or in your home, as always, you are most welcome. We have with us another guest today. Padre, would you like to introduce our guest to us? Absolutely. Uh, So we have with us today uh, Connor Sweeney. Uh, Connor is is presently living in Virginia uh, and uh, Connor and I go a little bit little way back you you uh, you taught me Connor you you, That's you right, um, yeah. I mean not not that you necessarily want to you know I'm not like the greatest <laughs> student you may not want to own up to that so <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> uh, but uh, so uh, Connor was one of my teachers at the John Paul II Institute and and um, uh, he was uh, academic here in Australia for for uh, how long were you here in Australia for Connor uh, it was about seven eight years oh. While I was teaching, yeah, okay. of course, I was studying here a couple of years before that. But uh, and uh, now he's he's uh, uh, in Virginia teaching at Christendom College, um, which, as I understand, there's a liberal arts college. Yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Connor is going to talk to us today about evangelization uh, and about some of the necessary kind of preconditions for that to to take place. Um, what might obstruct that and, and how we might actually uh, sort of successfully engage in it uh, in what are fairly difficult times. Um, so, Connor, tell us about your story. What, what are sort of the most important things that our listeners would need to know uh, about you? Well, it's not a particularly glamorous story, probably, um, but certainly if I was a kid and you were to tell me that, some, you know, decades in the future, I would be teaching theology, that I would have taught theology in Australia, and then that I would have moved to America, to another institution, I wouldn't have believed you as a, as a young kid. Um, probably my early life was more interested in sports than anything to do with the brain, the mind. Um, so I came to the game, as it were, um, you know, I was a bit of a late bloomer, but Basically, when I finished high school, the one thing that I did know was that I didn't want to go straight to work. So I decided, well, I'll go to university. That's at least four years to put off the inevitable. So I did general studies. Um, and about halfway through that, I sort of had a bit of a mini reconversion to the faith. And I became interested in John Paul II's theology of the body. And then that sort of started me down the theological path, properly speaking. And I ended up um, finishing my undergrad degree with just a general studies and then a Bachelor of Arts. And then from that, I sort of figured out, well, let's give it a go. I'm interested in the theology of the body. I'm interested in it at this point, primarily pastorally. But I decided, well, I know there's this place called the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family, and I want to study there. And I don't know where that's going to lead me, but what the heck, we'll give it a go. Um, so at that time, I had sort of been dating um, with my future wife, and we were engaged, we got married, and as it turned out, 
it made more sense to go to Australia to the John Paul II Institute there than to Washington, <laughs> D.C., which made more sense just because it was closer. But we ended up having an extended two-year honeymoon in Australia, so we took the Australian option. I mean, it's ironic now because now I'm teaching an hour away from Washington, <laughs> D.C., so it's a strange, strange world. But anyway, so I went and got my master's at the John Paul II Institute, and that became, I was asked to do a doctorate and then come back and teach at the Institute. And it was very much a week before we were scheduled to come home, and I didn't know what, what I was going to do. I was going to have this master's degree, but... I didn't really know at the time what it was called to. I didn't know how I could actually use that for the good of the church. But as it turned out, the, the dean of the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family, Tracy Rowland, the week before we left for Canada, asked me if I wanted to do a doctorate mm. in Rome. And so, okay, well, I mean, that's a door open, I would think. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll think about that. And within a month, we decided, yeah, we'll give, it, we'll give it a shot. So I ended up spending two years in Rome, did the pontifical doctorate. And then back to Canada for a year, had a couple kids in between, and ended up back in Australia in 2012. And I taught at the Institute for, from 2012 to 2018-19-ish. So then, of course, the tragic story of the Institute <clears throat> shut down by the Archbishop. You don't have to go into details on that. <laughs> um, but as Providence... As Providence had it, I ended up getting a job here at Christendom College, and that's where I am yeah. currently. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so you were here then for quite some time, by here I mean in Australia, for quite some time. Yes, that, that's Tell us correct. a little bit about what, you, what that experience was like for you and what, you know. It was good. It was very good. Um, being Canadian, we sort of took to the Australian <laughs> sense of humour and sort of laid-back attitude. Um, so we felt very, very comfortable there right from the start, made some great friends, some wonderful colleagues. I still keep in touch with colleagues regularly. Um, the climate's good, even <laughs> in right. Melbourne, the climate is, is good. I mean, Melbourne compared to Vancouver, if you don't like the rain, uh -huh. you don't live in right, Vancouver. Okay. So I love, the, I love the winter where you can actually do gardening <laughs> and stuff. But um, no, it was, a, it was a good experience all around. And realistically, I mean, if, if things had worked out differently and I could have stayed employed there it would have been somewhere where we could easily oh, wow. have seen ourselves living yeah. for the rest of our life yeah um so you you told us that you 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 teach in christendom college what is it that you teach i'm in the theology department um and basically what i'm currently teaching is what we call the core so every student at the college in their four-year degree starting their freshman and then through their junior year, freshman, um, sophomore, juniors, they've got to take core subjects. Um, so I'm currently teaching the core, but there will be scope for developing um, some electives beyond that. So I think I'm actually planning on doing an elective this fall on the death of God, oh. atheism, uh -huh. which is a topic which is dear to my heart in some way, if you can call atheism dear to one's heart. Um, but currently teaching undergrads, freshman theology, intro to theology courses. Um, and then I'm doing some evangelization and apologetics in one particular course. That'll be relevant to our conversation today. So hopefully it's mm -hmm. still fresh in my mind. Um, and I've also taught um, moral theology as well. So fairly a few different things I've, I've turned my hands to here. Hmm. Awesome. So we've, we've already said to you that we were keen to, to talk about evangelization today. And since you've, since you've raised it there, um, 
you quite literally wrote a book on it, uh, you know, and, and uh, it was uh, Abiding the Long Defeat. And I can remember picking that book up when I was a student, writing an essay for you and thinking I need every possible mark that I can get. So maybe if I <laughs> reference the lecturer's work, I might get an extra. That can be a risky, that can be a risky strategy. <laughs> so so I, um, I, I, I remember getting the book and I looked at the front cover and I thought, yeah, that's mm. a bit strange. I have no idea why that's there. And and then I, I moved on, right? And I, it's only that I picked up the book again yes. recently to have another read. And as I'm looking at it, I thought, that cover's rather profound. <laughs> it works. Um, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't my doing. It was my publisher. And yeah, I was actually quite amazed to see them have internalized the book. Yeah. The yeah. So yeah. for our listeners and our viewers who haven't seen it before, can you give us a bit of a description of what the front cover I, looks like? Can, hey, if I show it, one better. It to... One better. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. So this is the the the, the front cover. Um, and I think I've just improved this frame by holding it in front of my face. <laughs> uh, but, um, so, but for our listeners uh, who can't see the cover. <laughs> so the, the, for the listeners who can't see the cover, the cover there's a, a, a couple who are, uh, taking a selfie on the shore of a beach and in the beach itself is baptism taking place. And, uh, and it's, it's, uh, sort of in the ocean itself, there's baptism taking place. And there's, there's no, um, there's not even a recognition of what's going on from those who are taking a selfie. And so it's sort of a, to me, it stands as a bit of a contrast, uh, you know, and, and I just, I was wondering Indeed. if you could talk a bit about, because that so summarizes. Yeah, I mean, it's it does. I mean, it's funny because I assume that you know there's also this theme of Tolkien and and hobbits. So the subtitle is how to evangelize like a hobbit in a disenchanted age. So my assumption was, oh, the publisher is going to go with you know the kind of maybe a romantic sort of pastoral whatever and show something related to hobbits and you know countryside and trees and something sort of nice and sentimental like that. But they actually keyed in on you know some of the more intense themes in the in the books perhaps and that's represented by this image here so i mean if there is hobbits in it and i'll talk about <laughs> hobbits in a second there's also there's also baptism and so this notion of faith as total immersion so faith is not just a cognitive act i mean it is this bodily act and it's a nice image here because it is full immersion yeah. here in this particular representation of baptism so by baptism, you were immersed fully in the incarnation, the passion, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And this is symbolically, in a sacramentally real way, embodied in the baptismal rite itself. And so you go down into the dark waters of death with Christ. And your old nature is put to death. And you rise again. You burst out of the font, gasping for air. And you become a new creation. And now you are related to God in a way that you weren't before. And so there's this radical identity when we talk about what it means to be a believer. So that's kind of in the background in, in, this, in this image here on my front cover. And in the foreground, we have this couple um, in bathing suits. And that actually scandalized one of my more traditional friends. Um, but, you know, what can you do? Um, and, of course, they're holding the proverbial selfie stick, which is a remarkably narcissistic um, application of digital technology. And that says something too. So it's like we've forgotten baptism. We've closed things in on ourself. And if we have faith, well, maybe this couple, maybe they're believers, maybe they go to church on Sunday. Well, we can pass judgment on them as individuals and they won't even <laughs> exist because it's not even a photograph. But anyway, 
Um, there is a sense that as a culture, we've turned away from faith. We've turned away particularly from this embodied idea of faith. Faith, if we have it, is maybe a kind of abstraction. Maybe we pray to God in those dire moments when we need him, but most of the time we're happy when he doesn't make too of a, an intrusive appearance in our life. So as a culture, the foreground picture of the selfie stick and the couple, that's a image of the cultural dimension of the book. The fact that God is, as Nietzsche put it, dead. He has become culturally, socially, existentially irrelevant to us as a culture. Now, in the book, I basically say, well, baptism is our only real way forward at this time. If you want to talk about evangelization, if you want to talk about reconnecting with the vital truth of Christian faith, it has to go by way of the font. And in the font is not just new life. But it's also what I like to call a fundamental anthropology. It's telling you who you are as a person in relation to God, in relation to others. The imagery of this filial adoption, becoming a child, becoming a son in the son, sharing in Christ's relation to the father as son, being related to other people, other baptized in the church communion the image of nuptial one flesh here, Christ in the church, all of this is in some sense embodied in the text. And so if we do in fact want to detach ourselves from the secular liturgies of the age, an age that shapes our desires not in the direction of God, but in the direction of some substitute, ultimately I would say we need the jolt of baptism, not just as a ritual, not just as a little dump of water in the head, but again, as a kind of full immersion into an alternative way of, of living. Beautiful. Um, and um, that, as a priest, that really does sit, uh, sit with me because the, 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 a lot of times when, um, when I baptize a baby, um, it's it's often a case that I suspect that often it's seen as a rite of passage. You know, I, yeah. I suspect that it's seen as a as a moment of of um, well, you know, we, we we get this one baptized because that's what mum and dad did for me, and and look, I mean, it's it's the it's the gate of salvation. It's the it's the fundamental. I'm never going to say. No, I'm never going to reject or anything like that. Yes, uh, yes but right, but it's right. it's it just strikes me that we don't approach baptism with the uh, with the the reverence that it deserves uh, as the sacrament mm. by which we really um, are called out of ourselves, as you say, as sons in the Son. That's right, and of course, you know there are many reasons for that, but there is also a kind of you know, as Ratzinger puts it, this inability to understand a sacrament and what a sacrament means, how water can have these healing properties, actually giving birth to a spiritual reality. So these things are very difficult for modern, secular, postmodern man to, to understand. And part of the, the other part of that book in regards to culture is very much trying to, to dial into the fact, well, why is it that we can't understand yeah. something like mm baptism why is it that we understand god to be dead what has happened in terms of our historical yeah. understanding yeah. because the world used to be well used to be god was the one thing that was sort of always present as a presupposition sure we might have different ideas about him 
But now the norm sort of is, well, God is dead or at best an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are significant challenges in terms of getting people to again understand that it's not just a little drip of water on the head and it makes everyone feel good and we get to dress the baby up and we get to have you know refreshments afterwards. That's obviously part of it. You could say that's the communal, familial reality of coming together as a community and that's great. But of course, underneath that is the engine of that communion in terms of you know what we do as a people and how we understand ourselves fundamentally. So I think, I mean, my basic point is the resources are there, but they have to be applied, they have to be deepened, they have to be articulated, perhaps in, in new sure, ways. sure, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, no, well, thank you for explaining that because that that uh, as I say, that picture, it, it it I've 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 had this book for years, and it's only as I've recently pulled it out and had a good thorough look at the front cover that I've realised I've been missing something quite essential on that front cover. <laughs> Well, you almost you don't almost don't have to read the book. That's right. Just look at the front cover and divine the meaning. Uh, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) So the second the second part of the first thing that you mentioned is uh, about your book, Evangelize Like a Hobbit. What you you've got to unpack Mm. for someone who's not read the book yet. Can you unpack that? Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, Well. Along with the theme of baptism, along with the theme of analysis of culture and trying to figure out historically how we got to where we are today, um, I also sort of shape the book around um, a literary theme, more or less. And it's sort of written as a semi-popular piece of work. And so I was trying to make it readable, accessible in whatever way I could. And I sort of doing a few things in regards to evangelization, giving a few talks here and there, I sort of came up with this notion of, well, I can in some say shape my ideas around Tolkien's um, Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings universe mm. that, he, that he created. Um, and it is this cosmic sort of story of good and evil and um, the triumph over evil, albeit in very painful circumstances. And in some sense, that to me is an analogy for the mm. condition of faith today. You could say we're not sort of arrayed in bright armor like the the um, soldiers of Gondor, for example. That age has passed with all of its ambiguities. Um, certainly that would be a word that perhaps sums up Christian history in some sense historically. But whatever, whatever is the case, we don't have that anymore. So we're more like these two hobbits who are trudging one foot after another on their way to Mordor. And of course... They just assume that they're going to die there because they're walking into Sauron's um, evil empire, if you will, the logic of the machine, force, violence. In a sense, that's, a, that's another cultural um, similarity in, in regards to our age as well. So here we have these two hobbits with nothing but their own two legs, but more importantly, with faith. And they know they have a mission and they are prepared to sacrifice their life for it. So in some sense, that's an analogy for me that sums up our condition today. And in terms of this faith that, as the gospel puts it, can move mountains. In this case, they were trying to drop a ring into a fiery volcano, <laughs> but I think the image in some sense works. But, you know, this could be mm. us. And for me, being a hobbit represents what is sort of the fundamental dimension of 
the evangelical vocation that we're all called to preach the gospel, the good news. And in some sense, we preach that first and foremost when that's become something internalized in me, such that now I become a radiant icon of this truth that I profess. And it's only if I have that faith, that belief, that conviction, that I can really then be a light for the world and that perhaps I can be like Sam and Frodo on their way to Mordor, Mordor, not lose faith, not give in to despair. And also within that, I was sort of taken by the notion of mm-hmm. the fellowship of the ring that, you know, certainly at least at the beginning, they're, they're not in this alone. They have this fellowship. They have a kind of culture which holds them up and guides them. And that, of course, is fundamental to Christian identity as well. And of course, we don't really have that in many respects, we have glimpses of it from time to time, but the struggle for you know, living in community and being supported in our faith, that's part of our historical experience as, as well. So I try to develop that in the book as sort of the ground level basis of, well, if you want to be a good evangelist, well, you yourself have to confront yourself, own your belief, embrace your belief, and more importantly, integrate that belief into your own life before you can expect to make it credible to mm. the world. So something like Jordan Peterson talks about, yeah. you to clean mm. your own room before you can go out right. and change the right. world. So evangelization is not sort of activism. It's not even the disembodied word simply in the form of an intellectual argument. Um, it's simply, in some sense, the slog of daily life trying to live in fidelity to your, your own baptism. You were talking about personal responsibility before Jordan Peterson made it <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to hear that. I mean, I'm certainly not as, uh, not as famous as Jordan Peterson. Maybe after this podcast. I, I'm sorry, but we're not that big. <laughs> it's oh, you a- are not. <laughs> but that is that. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture to paint um, of where. Of, of the, the disposition, the place that we need to be ourselves, that we ourselves need to be at before we can even consider mm. going out. But also it makes me think that that in itself is a journey as well. It's not just the going out. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And in some sense, it's, it's harder in regards to faith for ourselves and harder because, well, I mean, it is always hard, no matter what historical age mm. we've, been, we've lived in, and the challenge of belief and our hard-heartedness and our concupiscence mm. and all the rest of it. I mean, we see that drama played out in the scriptural text very vividly. So nothing's changed in, in that regard. But certainly there are factors today that have, in fundamental ways, and this is, again, getting into mm-hmm. the thesis of the book, in fundamental ways changed the very fabric of human experience in a way that former ages didn't have. So I talk a bit about technology in the book, this, this selfie stick. Um, and technology has literally changed our experience of reality, such that the claims of faith may no longer appear as they once did. We can now create a technological world where, you know, unless you stop and think about it, well, all your needs are met in some way, and this is, in some sense, mm. virtual reality is is better than, than reality itself. And so there's any number of imaginative ways in which we can escape the, 
specter of our own mortality and finitude and suffering. But of course, ultimately, none of it actually works. And so we do find we're in greater despair, perhaps, than we've ever, ever been before, at least here in the West. And so I really did want to try to dial in on some of those cultural factors which make belief for ourselves a real existential um, challenge. Mm. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, it kind of flows on to a next question that, mm. that sort of sits on my mind, which is you do actually talk about the, uh, the, the, the virtual um, sort of so-called virtual evangelization. Um, and yes. um, in the, the sort of present uh, COVID world that we've got, in particular in the last couple of years, where sort of everything mm -hmm. is on Zoom, like if you had have invested in stock in Zoom before 2020, <laughs> I mean, you'd have just been so, you've been rolling in it, you know? So um, uh, the the we're sort of at a point where masses and talks and sort of uh, all this sort of stuff is is starting to come online and in some ways I can see that that's it's been helpful during a period where people were unable to 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 get out like I I get that it, it has a it has a helpful dimension um, I can't help but feeling though as well that that there is a dangerous side to this as well um, I'm just wondering if we could get your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a really good instinct. Um, and I think what we've seen is just how many things we can do online. And I mean, personally, I'm, I'm not a fan of it. I try to avoid it whenever I can. <laughs> Thank you for making the exception. But, <laughs> Thanks. Um, certainly, certainly the, the temptation is there. And the temptation is really in some sense that I can escape embodied mm -hmm. existence and all of its trials and all of its limitations. Um, and it's just easier perhaps to stay in your basement and simply stream a live mass or talk to your friends online or, hey, I don't even have to talk to my friends. Maybe I can just play video games or go into mm. my virtual reality and it's, mm. it's more exciting and, and glamorous there. And I'm a nerd in real life, but I can be a hero here in this virtual world. So there are temptations in terms of supercharging, you know, what is our natural aversion to confronting ourself, let's say. And if you have a problem with community, and you're not human in some sense if you, <laughs> if you don't have a problem with community, it's not easy living with other people. And so there are temptations in that regards in terms of a, of a fundamentally sort of disembodied way of, of living. Now, that's problematic from the point of view of who we are as body-soul composites. Mm. I mean, there is this bodily dimension, and it is in and through the body that the spiritual is, is experienced. I mean, JP2 talked about the body as a, a primordial sacrament. It's the site of the real, where you see the fullness of, of truth. The essence of Christian life, again, going back to baptism, is indeed this bodily immersion, this contact, this feeling, sensing, touching contact, not just with God, in the sacrament, think of the sacrament of the Eucharist, but also with our fellow man as well. Mm. So the church is fundamentally a reality of communion, one body in Christ, this communion of sharing in this relationship with God 
in his church and with other people. So as soon as you start to undermine that, in some sense, you start to undermine what it means to be human. Mm. And unfortunately, with something like the pandemic, well, the logic might go, well, in the name of safety, I need to stay away from going to mass because there's there's risk there. There's risk of illness. And so in some sense, now it's, well, there are a lot of other things that I've been doing that aren't particularly safe as well. So I should stop doing those as well. And before I know it, I'm sort of living paralyzed in fear when it comes to actually living an embodied human existence. And so digital technology, in some sense, holds this specter of a disembodied mm. virtual existence as in some sense the new ultimate good that we should be pursuing. Mm. Talk about talk about transhumanism. The goal is a kind of disembodied spirit reality that, hey, we could actually maybe live forever um, in, in some perverse way. We can talk about the metaverse, Mark um, Zuckerberg's mm. new right, vision right. for reality. Virtual headsets. I mean, we are perfecting these technologies in remarkably mm. freaky ways and really i mean the sky is literally yeah. the limit in terms of what we can do look at what we've done in the last hundred years technologically and if even a fraction of that pace continues for the next hundred years i mean mm. who knows where we'll yeah. be there but if it's true that we're bodies and that's the ground level in regards to who we are existentially in terms of our ontological constitution in terms of faith then it is a problem in terms of what virtual technology can represent. Mm. At a gut yeah. level, that makes so much intuitive sense. Just just thinking about the pandemic and even even the people that I spoke to, the fatigue that people felt from all of the yeah. Zoom calls an and phenomenon. even though they were supposedly connecting with other people, the exhaustion that came yes. from that and yes. people still feeling so dissatisfied I think at a gut level we got it. Yeah, I mean it's it's not like it's not like just sitting around mm. in a room with someone in, in a social sense. I mean there is this real reality in terms of the body bodily presence that that whole phenomenon. So you take that out of the picture and we try and live like brains in a vat or as human bobbleheads. I mean it just it doesn't really cut yeah. it ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, no for sure. And I mean, if mm. I could just say one more thing, I talking. <laughs> but um, of course, the problem is in terms of how we deal with this is, you know, I have to, right. I have to have one of right. these if I want to function in the so-called real world. And so if I am sort of, in some sense, constrained by the world itself that we've set up, I mean, how can I actually detach myself from it? I mean, in some sense, I can't. A lot of these things have become... Um, instruments that are necessary in terms of working a mm. nine-to-five-five job, um, and so we can't be sort of absolutely like luddites in relation to it. But there is a sense in which we need to also cultivate, you know, real bodily sacramental existence mm. as the foundation and the basis of the real for my own life, so that I can in some sense, use these technologies when I have to without them consuming my identity mm. and my life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think of a, one of my parishioners here in Narandra is, um, is housebound uh, and, um, um, and clever with a, a computer despite her age. Um, and uh, so she'll, I come and, and, and give her Holy Communion. Uh, once a once a week, but she also watches um, watches mass online 
um, you know, that's 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 something that she religiously does. Uh, is that she'll she'll watch a, a a mass online, and the following day I come and give her holy communion. Um, I, I think the moment at which she watches mass online is probably a, if I can use the word, a, a moment of grace for her. But I think the more sure. profound moment of grace is when Father comes with holy communion. You know, it's it's mm. you can't an online sacramental world is kind of a it's kind of an oxymoron isn't it and it's they, they, those 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 two things just don't that's go right, together right. you know uh, online and sacramental that the, the whole point of sacramental is that there is a there's a bodily thing here and while i think that that mm. the online realm can actually be a an occasion of grace i mean even from the perspective of evangelization ascension presents uh you know uh, the 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 various stuff that's that's particularly come out of the states, which is some pretty yeah awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Uh, can can be real occasions of 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 grace, um, but nothing quite supplies for the person to person contact, and nothing supplies for the sacramental reality. Yeah. Yeah, you need that as your sort of base level reality and the problem of course is that in many cases we don't we don't have that in any real functional and non-dysfunctional kind of way so i mean i think ultimately there's been a lot of stuff good in terms of online evangelization Mm. this podcast for example and and that's great but the problem is when that in some sense you know there's a risk that that becomes that it subtly changes our understanding of what faith is who god is to a kind of textual digital thing to a kind of gnostic reality that consists of the right information orthodoxy and as long as i have the right information at my fingertips i can spew out (laughs) this doctrine and this creed and all the rest of it then that makes me somehow a a good christian so it's like okay we're feeding the life of the mind here and that's Mm. good but are we also feeding the body? Are we actually recognizing this knowledge as ultimately serving the integration of the person, serving an understanding of faith where it's not just about ideas, but it's about this new sacramental relation to God. It's seeing God face mm-hmm. to faith. It is being healed in myself so that I can be in communion with others. So the problem is not per se the technology in many cases, but the problem is that on the ground, we have deep, deep problems when it comes to the embodying of faith. And until you fix that, in some sense, you can throw as much information as you want at it. But it's like your, your parishioner there, Father. I mean, it's probably she's grateful for the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ. Yes, but it's probably also really good for her to have that mediated by you, her pastor, to see you in yeah. the flesh. And so that's all part of this, yeah, you know, absolutely. communion being of the essence of Christian life that we risk if we sort of say, well, as long as we have the right doctrines and as long as we have all these good websites and programs and so on, then, well, what, what yeah. more do we need? Really mm, yeah, right. So maybe that sort of ends up precluding that, no, this knowledge ultimately serves the embodied reality itself. But those are just some of the thoughts that in some sense come through in the, the book as well. One last question before we get to our last question, which is a ridiculous 
sentence now that I've said it out loud. Um, um, in, in the very first pages of your book, uh, you make a, a point that living faith does not mean living in a ghetto. Um, and, mm. but it, yes. and you say it takes the center of the church to the heart of the world. Can you speak to that for us for a bit? Yeah. I mean, some of the things I've just been saying, you know, it may, one particular interpretation of it would be to say, well, technology, the world, secularism, that's all bad. And so what we should do is retreat to our cave and, you know, t- attempt to insulate ourselves from the world. Um, you've probably heard mm. of the Benedict option. Sure. It's sort of been popularized recently. Now, what I've just said isn't actually, doesn't have to be the Benedict option per se, but there is a sort of caricature that if we want to survive, we have to sort of distance ourselves from the world in some fundamental way. Now, that's not what I'm, what I'm arguing in the book, although I do say in some sense we do need to distance ourselves, not absolutely, but as open our eyes to the challenges of the world and the way that things within the world undermine our faith, but from that, move towards self-consciously trying to cultivate a baptismal identity, trying to come back into content with that living faith that in the span of about four centuries after Christ had ended up taking over over the world at that time. And a, a remarkable transformation. So how do we enter into that kind of encounter and relationship with faith once again? One of the things that I do with my, um, my juniors here at, at the college, Christendom College, teaching them about evangelization and apologetics is we go back to the experience of the early church and we try to figure out, well, what was it that made Christian belief so attractive in the beginning to these, you know, these Roman, these Roman people at this time. One historian has sort of talked about the way that Christians kept their identity intact. He uses the word belief, belonging, and behavior. And these were very much in a kind of tight matrix in regards to the early Christians' identity. And so they guarded things like worship very carefully. Only believers, the initiated, were allowed in to even see what was going on the celebration of the Eucharist. Belief was very important in terms of vetting catechumens. Are you actually converting for the right reasons, as it were? And then, of course, there's also this notion that, well, this is a total way of life. Early Christians simply called Christianity the way. And so it's not like you can do this or that act and call yourself a Christian. So they integrating belief, faith, and behavior was also mm. very important, providing a total sort of worldview. Now, None of this means, however, that the Christians were simply isolating themselves from the world at the time. Yes, they were concerned about their identities, their community, their practices, but it was precisely a robust identity cultivated there that then allowed them to to go out Mm. and engage the world. Acts of love, caritas, caring for the poor, caring for, for abandoned babies. This is all very typical of ancient Roman society. And they were doing things that no one else had ever thought to do. And they were doing things out of love as an extension of this profound identity, the relationship with Christ that was cultivated in the church, not just at the level of the mind, but also embodied in belonging and um, and, and behavior. So in some sense, that's what's needed. How you do that practically is the big question. 
Um, but again, Christianity is not just about an idea. It's not just about an abstraction, but it very much is a total lived, organic, and ultimately social reality as well. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that's really helpful to hear. I think it's, it's, um, it can always be a bit of a temptation um, to think, well, if I'm going to preserve something, it means uh, becoming insular. Uh, and and in, yes. in fact, I think the preservation of a Christian identity actually demands uh, just what you've been saying, really. It demands mission. It demands that I, I yes, go out. absolutely. Um, fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have one final question, which we like to ask all of our guests that come on the Living Fullness podcast. Um, so we'd love to hear what your thoughts are. What do you think it takes to live life to the full? Yeah, life to the full. Well, I think I've softened you up a little bit in terms of what my answer uh, might be. Um, obviously, we're talking about the primacy of faith. We're created in God's image the incarnation, the hypostatic union, these amazing things that, that God gives us by way of revealing himself to us. I mean, that is life and life to the full, as Christ himself spoke of it. Um, so that's fundamental. Um, and again, as I've been saying, that has to become a living reality in your life if it's actually going to have, have an effect. You can't sustain that purely as an intellectual abstraction. So I tend to be a very existential kind of a guy. You can ask my, my students about that. In some sense, we do really need to confront the way that faith challenges mm -hmm. us. We can't just be satisfied if we have the correct belief. How do, we, how do we live? What is the condition of my heart, first and foremost? And of course, I raise these questions knowing full well the condition of my own heart. So you know, this stubbornness and hard-heartedness, which belongs to the, the fallen condition. Um, so life to the full very much just means deeper and deeper immersion into the mystery of the incarnation, death, passion, resurrection of Christ, which is given to us as an event, as an encounter in the baptismal font. And so, I mean, obviously you can say a lot more about what constitutes a full life, but as a theologian, that would be the, the first thing that comes That's awesome. Out. Love it. <laughs> Connor, thank you so much for being with us today uh, and, and for sharing um, a little bit of, of your um, your hope for for, uh, for Christianity. Really, that 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 you know it becomes the we become an evangelizing people, um, and um, um, so we we move now to a, a quick lightning round, and uh, um, Stina. You kick off for us. Okay, sure. First question. Just the first thing that comes to mind, Connor. Yeah. Oh, okay, here we go. First question oh, is tea or coffee? Oh, coffee. <laughs> coffee. Coffee. You... Well, I have one tea a day, but coffee keeps me going until the evening. I already knew the answer to that question. <laughs> I think Padre, Padre and I have this competition myself. going at the moment of how many guests can we get to say tea for me? <laughs> And I think he's teeing up the okay. guests. It almost happened. He's teeing <laughs> up the guests right now. <laughs> uh, and uh, what's a hobby you enjoy? Golf. Oh, okay, cool. I don't play enough of it. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah, yeah nice, good. nice. Uh, favorite band or composer? 
You want? Oh boy, you want to know the first thing that came to mind? Nirvana. Yeah, Nirvana oh, nice. Yeah. That's the first thing that came that's to mind. Awesome. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I am more of a classical lover of classical music. Sure. But sure. every now and again, when I'm feeling existential, <laughs> I reconnect with some of the music. That's fantastic. Uh, the, the other thing is that there's now a whole group of young people Googling Nirvana, which is just wonderful. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. Well, it's a lot better than the, than the stuff young people listen well. to. Really, right? <laughs> uh, what's one thing that people misunderstand about you? Oh, oh boy, that's a, that's a good question. That's sort of tapping into my insecurities and anxieties. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I have no idea. Um, but what they don't know about me, they probably, most people don't know what I look like without a beard, actually. Uh-huh. So, uh, it, true, true. So long now, yep. But yep. Okay. I, I can't think of anything more profound. I, well, actually, I don't think I've ever seen you without a beard either. So that's, that's. <laughs> All right, there you go. What does he look like? <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> um, what is the first memory that comes to mind when I say Australia? Kangaroos. Yeah. But it's more than that. That's just a story. <laughs> but, but a memory. Is there a memory that comes to mind? A memory. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I don't like snakes. And I have memories of seeing my first poisonous snake in the wild in Australia. Um, that's also stereotypical. But um, I remember that. I do remember that. But probably memories and just in terms of I had four Four of my kids, three of my kids were born there. Mm. Um, so we've got little Aussie Canadians. Um, so that's certainly memories that stick out to me in terms of, you mm. know, just being, them being Australian. And they'll, of course, now have a chance to go back whenever they want with, with no drums, mm. if our world ever does return to yeah, that's right. of normalcy. But no, that would, that's probably what I would say there. Cool. Cool. Uh, okay. And finally, you're on a desert island. You have three, you can have three things. What are they? Do I have to say the Bible or is that just a cliche? <laughs> it's just a cliche. You um, can say what you want. <laughs> <laughs> three things. Well, I would probably need a book or two. Um, I'll, bring, I'll bring Balthazar's Love Alone is Credible nice. as a book. Um, three things. Well, I'll probably want my wife there. I'll bring my wife there. Um, I don't know if people would have to say that, but um, the third thing, well, water. Just to keep it nice. <laughs> nice. Balthazar, your wife, and water. And water. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All righty. Thank you once again for being with us, uh, Dr. Connor My Sweeney. My pleasure. You can certainly uh, buy. Uh, we'll link a copy of Dr. The Dr. Connor's book, book Abiding yeah. the Long Defeat, and uh, you can purchase that through. Uh, uh, Amazon or any of the, the the sort of normal channels that you purchase books from, you can pick that up, and it's a really Correct. good read. So I suggest you do so. Um, and that um, was very forthright. I suggest you do so, wasn't it? That was, <laughs> yeah. but but I, I really you do encourage. <laughs> I encourage as your as your pastor. Right? <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, and uh, Connor, once again, thank you for your your presence and your insight. For those of you who aren't already members of our Patreon community, I encourage you to jump over there and become a Patreon because we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Connor today about the role of families in evangelization. So if you'd like to jump over and sign up to one of the higher tiers, you will have access to that conversation. 
So until next time, know of our love and prayers. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Living Fullness. We hope that in this episode, there was something useful or helpful or something that blessed your life. If that is the case, would you please consider sharing this podcast with someone? Perhaps it will bless their lives too. Please also subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. That will also help others to find the podcast too. And join us over on our social media, Living Fullness on Instagram and Virtue Ministry on Facebook. Facebook.